Claire Edwards from BrainSmart People Development, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership, a series of conversations, insights, and inspirations with leaders who are real, raw, and authentic. Today, I bring you a conversation with Professor Debbie Haskey-Leventhal, MBA Director at Macquarie University, and an exceptional human being. Debbie begins by sharing her extraordinary story of family tragedy and what it meant to become members of a cult-like organisation and the trauma that ensued. If you're impacted in any way by Debbie's story, please reach out to the various support organisations in your country. This story, though, has a dramatic upturn and is the essence of our conversation today, which is the essence of meaningfulness in leadership. Enjoy. I met this month's guest at a Women in Leadership event where she was the keynote speaker. And it wasn't just the moving and insightful story that she shared that really struck me, but this combination of determination and strong gentleness commitment to the cause that was unshakable and at the same time a deep sense of gratitude and when I won her book and I started to read it I just knew that I had to have her as a guest on the podcast and so I'm very very grateful that she said yes. Debbie Haskey-Leventhal is an awarded and well-published professor of business management and the MBA director at Macquarie University Australia with over 60 academic articles five books and an amazing TED talk, she dedicates her teaching, research and knowledge to creating impact and enabling others to find meaningfulness and purpose. And that's the topic of our conversation today, the essence of meaningfulness in leadership. Debbie, a very warm welcome to Authentic Leadership. Thank you so much for this beautiful and generous introduction. I love it. <laughs> I was jumping up and down when, like it was my birthday when I got your book. I was so excited. Oh. And, and <laughs> yet it, it's, it's already very well thumbed through. Now, <laughs> when, when you spoke, you shared a little bit of, as I say, a little bit of your story. Mm. And I know that uh, as a first question, this is... It's going to be so difficult for you to answer in such a short period of time, and I've no idea how you're going to put it into a snapshot. Snapshot, but to set the scene, are, are you able to give us just a, an insight into your well? Can only be extraordinary life growing up. I will try. Yeah. All right. So i I was born in Tel Aviv in the 1970s into tragedy. So the minute I was born, my brother, who was um, seven years older than me, was diagnosed with cancer. And for three years, my family tried everything to save him. But sadly, he passed away when he was 10 and I was three. And then growing up in a bereaved family was very frightening and very difficult. And so when I was five, my mother, in her search for meaning and comfort after the worst thing that for me, I think it's the worst thing that can happen to a person to lose a child. Oh, yeah. She came across the Kabbalah Center. And Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism 
And the Kabbalah Center, what they did is saying instead of this is being very um, difficult to access knowledge, which was supposed to be learned only by men who are over 40 and people who've studied their whole lives, they said, we're going to make it accessible for everyone. And that was quite tremendous. So when my mom joined the Kabbalah Center, it was really early days of the center, (laughs) years and years before Madonna and Mm. Ashton Kutcher and all the other celebs joined it, before it was trendy. And then we would go to this small basement in in Tel Aviv and they would study Kabbalah. I would just sit there and understand nothing. (laughs) But (laughs) this center became the background ground of my childhood these were they were my family they were they were our everything so the people of the kabbalah center meant so much to us and the kabbalah center became stronger and stronger and it started to become a very controlling organization Mm -hmm. so everything from changing my name telling people what to wear what to do people gave up their lives to join the kabbalah center they quit their jobs they sold their house they they even left their spouses and it started to grow and, and we would have commune of men and women separately uh, living to living and together and then trying to sell the books and spread the light, as they would say in mm-hmm. the center. It had a lot of odd rituals. There was everything there, controlling behavior, um, sexual abuse, the lot. Wow. <laughs> so when I was 18, I was sent to um, do plowing, <laughs> which is the code name in the Kabbalah Center for selling the books. And wow. um, it was a very, very harsh reality to see what it looks like behind the scenes. So I decided to, to leave the center, and it mm-hmm. was as liberating as jumping off an airplane without a parachute. It was just terrifying Ah. because the Kabbalah Center and also they've put me in very, very religious schools, like what you see in unorthodox, ultra-orthodox schools, very extreme. And my whole life was defined by these circles. I knew what I was supposed to think do and feel every minute of the day. So stepping out of this safety zone was was terrifying. And so I had to undergo my own meaning search at a very young age, 18 and a half, 19. And I went and I wrote a, <laughs> I wrote a journal trying to think about who I am, what I believe in, what my values are. And so this, this is the way that my search for meaning has begun. And then um, I decided to go to university and study philosophy because I was amazed by the ability of normal people to ask questions. <laughs> I was never allowed to ask questions yeah. growing up. If I did ask questions, my you know the rabbi or the principal would just tell me, "Don't do this. This is Satan's work. Don't think about this thing." And and any critical thinking was shut down. So it was amazing for me to be able to go to university and ask the big questions. But it was also a struggle because I had no financial or emotional support from my parents to do so. And so in order to survive, I had to take on a lot of odd jobs. But I also started volunteering a project where I helped a kid. And in return, I got half my tuition fee waived. 
And after everything I did in the Kabbalah Center, that was really the first time in my life where I felt like what it is to make a difference Ah. in someone else's life. And I loved it. So I volunteered for another year, became the volunteer coordinator and then the vice manageress. And and then I decided to go on studying. I did a master's degree in not-for-profit management, wrote a thesis about volunteering in Rape Crisis Center, which was amazing. And then a PhD on people who volunteered in um, outreach um, organization for street kids, which was Mm -hmm. also amazing. And so that was the pathway that I had to trailblaze and to decide my entire life to focus on the positive of humanity, on pro-social behavior of individuals such as volunteers, Mm -hmm. and then on the pro-social positive behavior of companies which led me to where I am today, a professor of corporate social responsibility. I think I managed to tell a story of 50 years in five minutes. <laughs> I, I am in such awe. I think you've done that so so beautifully and so succinctly. succinctly. And, and some of the elements that you've put in, I suppose, as I was listening, I was thinking, so, I mean, the Kabbalah Center did give you meaning. That was That was all of your meaning. And then you went from that, to nothing to have to find meaning again so what 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 did you draw on what you know in the darkest of times not being financially supported um, I suspect that your family weren't overly supportive either as you'd left what did you draw on I'm not going to sugarcoat it it was very difficult and when I shared with my sister what I'm writing in the book, and I told her how I opened the book, Um, she said, did you share that you tried to commit suicide the night you came back from Paris? And I was so shocked that I couldn't speak for a few minutes. It's like, what are you talking about? Because I couldn't even remember. It was so dark that I can't even remember most of the things that happened to me in the months I spent in Paris. I don't remember what happened when I returned, but I do remember the the deep meaning search. And I had to, I felt like I was walking on thin air. Mm. I really felt like I was, you know, in one of these cartoons when they run and they they realize they're (laughs) walking over the cliff and there is nothing nothing below them and then they fall. Yeah, that's how I felt. And I was like, okay, and now I have to knit my parachute as as I'm falling. So wow. it was very difficult. And I thought, okay, think, Debbie. What, oh, except I, I was Devorah at the time. I said, what do you believe in? You know, and I thought, I always love animals. I've, I love compassion. Mm-hmm. My first value will be compassion. I had to write down my values. I had to wow. go and say to myself, what do you believe in? What, what is your Bible? Because if you're giving up the old Bible, what, are mm. you, what is your new Bible going to mm. be? And so I had to, to write my own Ten Commandments and I had to think for myself. And it was liberating. It really was. But it was also very, very frightening at mm. least at first. Um, and also to face a lot of demons because in the Kabbalah Center, we, we believe that if we behave well and we spread the light, we will, well, there were two versions. Either we'll go to heaven or we, we will come back to for a second life and so that was that was eternity. And then giving it all up, 
I felt like I got a death sentence. So at the age of 19, I felt like I was I was dying. And yes, it's like I got a death sentence of about 70 years, but I still it still felt like a death sentence. Yeah. And so I had to ask myself, okay, how do I get over the fear of death? Because it was really occupying my mind at 19. And I said to myself, okay, I have to live in the moment mm-hmm. and I have to maximize my life on this planet for the 70, 80, 90 years that I've got. Mm. What can I do to maximize my my living, my you know, my life? And yeah. so I started contemplating on a few ideas. But when I started volunteering with this little boy, mm-hmm. which by the way, I found years later and he still remembered me. So it felt oh. like so good. But when I did that and I started feeling like, okay, now the void is filling up. And I realized that by working with others, by helping others, you really are helping yourself. And it was yeah. funny because years later, the United Nations wrote a report on the state of volunteering. And they asked me to write two chapters, one of which was the benefits of volunteering. And I looked at all the research. And in the end, (laughs) the person who benefits the most from volunteering is not the recipient. It's the volunteer themselves. Yes. And, And that was something that I felt, you know, quite intuitively at 20 when I volunteered with this, with this little boy. And so that became the mantra of my life. How can I fill the void by filling or by making a difference in someone else's life. And and that became the way that it guided me in my life, in my career, and today in everything that I do. And I and I've and I've witnessed I've witnessed that in in your communication and everything. It's just as you were talking, it reminded me of um something that Audrey Hepburn said that is if you need a helping hand you'll find it at the end of your arm oh Oh, gosh and so when you're talking about you know searching for meaning and obviously the first thing that comes to mind is is that amazing book that every individual on the planet should have by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And your book is called Make It Meaningful. So it was interesting. When I was reading your book, I was thinking, well, aren't they the same thing? What's me? Isn't meaning the same as as meaningfulness? I'm a bit confused. And then you start, it was really weird. It was was about the next sentence. Then you started to explain. So so can you share with our listeners what, what meaningfulness is? What's the meaning of meaning? What's the meaning of meaningful? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I was really, I had to dive into it because people say, why do you call it meaningful and meaningfulness, not meaning? And because for me, there are like three levels of meaning. So the first one is the linguistic meaning that we attach to words. And it's quite interesting because, you know, someone may, may mean one thing and then another one may means another Mm. because I wrote an email to someone in my uh, business school yesterday and I said let's have a bi-weekly meeting Mm -hmm. and he said do you mean twice a week or once every two weeks (laughs) I said oh 
boy, my English. And so I went to Google. It actually means both. So, <laughs> so that's the, you know, the, 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 the first level of meaning. The second one is more the emotional meaning that we attach to think. and that mm-hmm. could be things. And that could be deriving from our childhood, our experiences, our trauma, tragedy, but also our triumphs. And so, for example, the word house could have one meaning, but the word home has a very mm. loaded emotional meaning. The other thing that's why I didn't want to just call it meaning, I want to call it meaningfulness. It's when you feel like you're full of meaning, that your life really matters. Ah, yeah. um, and that sense of mattering, I, um, I looked at the paper you've sent me yesterday, which was beautiful about liter- social leadership, and it had the importance. So I think mm. that's very similar. It's this sense of mattering, this sense of significance, that what you do in your life and at work really matters. And if you are able to accomplish that sense, then your life and work will be more meaningful in the sense that they will be full of meaning and that you will know not just what you're doing and how you're doing it, but why you're doing it. And you're able to go back to your why yeah. every time it gets hard, every time you think about the future, and when you want to start thinking about a vision for your company or for the world, you'll go back to that why. Oh, okay. So listening to you before, there, there were some really, really good steps that you sort of, in, in sharing what you did that you put in place in terms of you had to, you had to write your own Bible, you had to write your own Ten Commandments. Mm. But for... for for people listening to this, and I, I know it's called, uh, you know, meaningfulness in, in, in leadership, but for anybody in a way, because we lead ourselves as well. If there are people listening who are struggling to say, but how do I know if, if what I'm doing, how do I know if I have meaning in my life, you know, and is it different meaning in my life to meaning in my work or you know I don't feel very meaningful Mm. um I think there may be a lot of people who who are searching and you know and I know we're sort of already jumping into solution mode but I think they may be thinking now it's like well where do I where do I start what what is it right in front of me and I just don't realize it (laughs) <laughs> I love your questions. <laughs> and I think we tend to approach words like purpose and, and passion and meaning with a bit of, of awe and, and fear and, oh, these are such big words. How do you start? And I say, start simple. <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't have to think about how do I find the purpose of my life? And, and that's why, you know, I'm so happy that I've got years and years of research behind me to show that the best way for you to really start is by just reaching out and, and offering a helping hand. Mm. It goes so far, you wouldn't believe it. So it could be random acts of kindness. Think about today when you go out, you know, get out of your house. Are you smiling at people? Are you offering help? Are you being really um, nice to people <laughs> road and at work? Are you asking people how they are, but quite attentively? 
Are you listening to them with empathy? So that's the beginning. It's like you can do it. It is just there. You could just start today. And amazingly, oh, it feels so good to be to be that kind of person. You just offer a help to someone in the supermarket and all of a sudden you've got oxytocin in your body and you're like, oh, what happened here? Because, <laughs> it, you know, we've got the data to show us that this is how it works. I, and then you can, yeah, go ahead. I know. I just when you said supermarket, so <laughs> I was in I was in Woolies yesterday, and I, I don't have any kids, but I, I've done a fairly big shop, and they've got these Disney cards or something. So yeah. I, I went I went up to the woman, and I said, you know, I've got uh, can I have these three Disney cards, please? Anyway, she gave me a few more, and then I started scouring around to find someone with kids. Okay. And I went up. <laughs> said you know do you say do you do you save these cards and then I'm walking out the supermarket and this kid's running after me because there was one card oh, that she really wanted and that made my day oh. <laughs> you see it cost you nothing no. it took very little it only took is kindness and we kind of overlook the amazing, powerful impact of just yeah. being kind. Yeah. And maybe we'll have time to talk about kindness in leadership too, but it's just an amazing feeling. So then, okay, so we can do that in our everyday behavior, mm -hmm. but we can also be more purposeful and we could start thinking, okay, maybe I can volunteer, maybe I can do some activism, I want to march, I want to... And it doesn't have to be difficult. Mm. You can even volunteer online. You can participate in social and environmental activism just through social media. Um, you can start really small. And then you can yeah. also look for some local places to volunteer and work with others. But I don't know if we're going to get to that later. But what I try to convey in the book is that when you tie your talent, what you know best, and your passion, what you care about, to your impact, this is where you start living a more purposeful life. And maybe we'll dive more deeply into that. Well, life. I think that's a perfect segue, actually, okay. into, that, into, that, <laughs> into that model, because it's so simple and so profound at the same time. So no, please do share more. Okay, excellent. So this is called the tip model. Goodness, I had so many versions of it. <laughs> I landed with the tip model, um, and I like its simplicity. So the tip stands for talent, impact, passion. And so we start with talent. Again, it sounds like a big word, but I don't know how to play the piano or dance like a ballerina. That's not what I mean by talent. The talent is the accumulation of all your knowledge, skills, capabilities, whatever you bring even to your work or to yeah. your hobbies, we all have some kind of talent. I'm yet to meet someone who has no talent at all. Yes, you can't play the piano, but there are so many things that you're good at, even like having a conversation with people. Mm. That's your talent. You like walking in nature. That's a talent. Anything can be seen as a talent. And then you look at your passion. And it's an interesting word, passion, because you know I love digging into the original meaning of words, mm. part of my search for meaning. And I discovered as I was writing the book that the word passion actually means suffering yes. and that it came from Christian uh, literature and the, uh, the, the suffering of Jesus and so on. And then in the 15th century, it became synonymous with um, really big, great love that causes you suffering, you know, Romeo and Juliet kind of love. Mm. And today it's about anything that we care deeply about. 
And some people say, well, I don't, have, I don't know what my passion is. I can't find my passion. Well, you do care about something. You care. You could care about your local neighborhood. You could care about climate change. You might care about gender equality or the pay gap. There must be something that you care about. Or maybe another way of looking at it is, is there something that makes you a little bit angry and you mm. want to change, right? You want to make a difference. That could be your passion. So you don't have to look something big. You don't have to be Greta Thunberg. You can start thinking about what do I care about? What do I want to change? And you could start small. And then if what the secret is, is if you can find a way to connect your talent and your passion to something that would create a positive impact, that is when you start really feeling more purposeful in your life. So that could be, for example, okay, let me give you a couple of really small examples. Mm -hmm. You like jogging, okay? And mm -hmm. you care very deeply about people with disabilities because you had a sibling who had a disability. What if you can create some kind of an exercise for people with disability or just offer it to help with people with disability who wants to exercise and then you can exercise with them? Yeah. I had this woman who discovered that she could jog with people with vision impairment, They tie like a ribbon be, be between their hands and that this way they jog. So, you know, it could be something as simple as that. You like, you like playing music and you could play in an aged care home and make the elderly happy. You could, you know, you, you're good at cooking, you're good at photography and you care about climate change. How do you, how do you tie the two? And it may be as easy as like, okay, I'm, I'm a photographer. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take photos of the bushfires and put it up so people are aware of the horrendous effects of climate change. Or, you know, I, there is so many ways in which you can tie what you love doing and what you care about in a way that could create positive impact. And the thing about impact is you don't always see its results immediately. No. And so you think, okay, I'm planting seeds. I'm taking these photos of the bushfires. I don't know who sees them. I don't know what their reaction is going to be. And I don't know how they're going to act upon this reaction. So you just do what you can and you spread what you can in the world. And then someone else might pick it up and work with it. That's the beauty of this ripple effect impact. You know, I, I, I love that. Firstly, you've given really, really practical examples And secondly, I'm, I'm seeing this tip model as a three-legged chair because identifying your talents and understanding what you care about, quite often people, that, that they have an awareness of that, but they don't always take action. And maybe it's the really realizing the potential impact that you can make that then catapults you into doing something about it. And anyone can make an impact. Yeah. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be a celebrity. You don't need one million followers on Instagram. Anyone can create a positive impact. Mm. It might be small. It might start small and become bigger. It might be, have a ripple effect. It might be that you start and someone else carries the baton. You don't know how it's going to end. Mm. As long as you get up, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I've heard you, you, we spoke about Daniel Flynn, the founder of Thank You. Yeah. I heard him lecture once and he said, get out and stay out. And he <laughs> says, get out of your comfort zone and stay out of it. 
to, to achieve great things. And I just get out of your house, you know, get out of your, your couch, get out of your comfort, get out of your devices <laughs> and do something. And, and that might be something that will, you don't know, might transform your life, might transform others. And, and I'm so, I'm so glad you mentioned him because their, their, their sense of meaning and purpose is so strong. They've reinvented themselves yet again. Every ob- every obstacle they come across. Okay, so the supermarkets are hammering us. Right, we're going to have pop up shops. You know that they they're so strong on their why. And actually, that is a lovely segue into, I suppose, into the world of work. And I've got so mm. many questions around this. I don't know which one. I don't know which <laughs> one to start with. Start um, with the first one. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, you know, obviously, we've got there are in in terms of some of the external influences. We've got um, ESG requirements. We've got the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There are there are sort of external drivers out there. But in terms of you, you know, it, actually, just linking it from you said, you know, you, you don't have to be a celebrity. You can just be an individual. You don't have to be a Unilever or a thank you, you're a small organization. And I don't know, maybe you're manufacturing widgets or something. Is how can you link or find meaning in what you do or make an impact or transfer or harness the power of individuals, workers who want to make an impact to the organization. Sorry, that's about three questions in one. <laughs> I love this <laughs> And, you know, in your very generous introduction, you mentioned that I wrote five books and, and two of them are about corporate social responsibility. And boy, I had to really work with existing mix, misconceptions around corporate social responsibility mm. because so many companies and people think that CSR is about charity and giving money to charity and doing employee volunteering or writing reports like ESG reports. So showing how we meet the environmental, social and governance uh, requirements so we could, um, you know, work in a, a legal way and meet all the legal requirements. And and then there are the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 global goals that we need to achieve, and there's so much. But, okay, let's put all of these aside for a yeah, second. Yeah, If I asked you, Claire, are you a responsible person, you wouldn't say to me, yes, Debbie, I give some money to charity, right? <laughs> so... Let's go back to the meaning of the word responsibility. What does it actually mean? Mm-hmm. And, and if, if we're talking about a responsible person, it's a person who tries not to cause harm and takes uh, responsibility over their actions, making sure that everyone around them are safe, reaching out to people, saying that everyone is okay. That's being a responsible person. Yeah. Companies be it a multinational corporation or a small family business, should be the same. So it's, it is about thinking, who am I as a business? What kind of impact do I create, both negative and positive, in my actions? And, of course, the bigger you are, the bigger impact that you have. Which means, you know, <laughs> like they say in uh, the Marvel movie, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so we have to think about who we are as a company. And then from there, start thinking, what is our purpose? You know, I had a marvelous conversation two weeks ago with a company that connects employees to employers. Mm-hmm. Really fantastic work that they're doing, bringing talent from Israel to around the world and promoting the reputation of the country. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So I asked them, what is your purpose? And they go, oh, you know, we offer people jobs. We offer employers talent. Yes. But what happens when you offer a person a job? If you were ever jobless, what happens when you find a job? What you get is a sense of dignity and meaningfulness. Yeah. So you're not in the business of finding people jobs. You're in the business of dignity and meaning. Boom, the whole conversation has changed. Yeah. And that was just a, a you know one example of how we try to understand who we are as a business. What is it that we do? We think about you know our responsibility in a more holistic way. So we look into our entire value chain, and it might be a short value chain if you're a small business. It might be a very long and complex one if you're a multinational corporation. How do we minimize harm in every part of our value chain and supply chain? And then how do we utilize who we are, what we're known for, our resources, our people, our intellect, our talent to create a positive impact Mm -hmm. in the world? Very similar to the TIP model, but Mm. now we take it to an organizational level. And the role of leaders is not to obviously maximize profit at any cost, nor is it to make sure that everyone is happy. The role of leaders in my eyes today is become is to become not only purpose-driven, but also purpose-enablers. How do you, and that's your role, how do you enable people to get up in the morning and come to work feeling that what they do matter? If you do not give people this sense of mattering, you know, to paraphrase on the beautiful TED Talk by Benjamin Zander. Ah, yes. Isn't it marvelous? (laughs) I love him. Who am I as a leader that my players' eyes are not shining? Who am I as a leader that my employees' eyes are not shining? You need to cultivate a sense of meaning and purpose so deep that people around you will walk with shining eyes. That is such a great way. <laughs> you know, forget KPIs. This is the real KPI. <laughs> Are people around you walking with shining eyes? And it doesn't mean that work is always, you know, love, love, joy, joy, kumbaya, but that you do have a sense of mattering, that yeah. what you do is significant. Yeah. And it amazes me how many people are working in organizations that really create an impact and have no idea that their organization matters and that their work matters. And that is such a missed opportunity. And, you know, there was something, um, I was actually on a a call this morning with the the growth faculty and it's something that was linked, linked both to your book and to your amazing TED Talk were these these three power questions. Yeah. Can, can have I given you enough of a lead to, to <laughs> share? Because I just love them. Oh, 
these are questions that have been guiding me in my life. And I, I wrote a book about the same topic as my TED Talk, which is a purpose-driven university. Mm-hmm. At some point, I started thinking, you know, I've learned so much about purpose-driven organizations. What if universities can do um, can do the same? So I've asked, you know, the, these questions. And I asked I ask myself these questions, and I suggest that leaders and companies will also ask themselves the same question is, why does the world need you? If you were to close down tomorrow, what would be lost forever? And why should anyone care? And these are the three questions that I think anyone should ask that. Why does the world need us? Mm. And so your maybe uh, primary answer to that will be, um, okay, the world needs us because we are manufacturing products that people buy. All right. But if you were to close down tomorrow, can the world survive without your products? In fact, maybe it would be better off. You know, think yeah. about, for example, junk food yeah. <laughs> companies. If you were to close down tomorrow, you know, there's there's some beverage companies. If they were to close down tomorrow, plastic pollution would go down dramatically and people's health will increase. Absolutely. And so I'm not naming any names, but you know what I mean. <laughs> especially, especially in Mexico. all around the world really and so if this is just about your product someone else can create these products if you are able to then tie your company to a specific purpose and become an impact creator and an impact enabler that's when you will understand why does the world need you and what will be lost forever if we're to close down tomorrow? And these are really important questions. And without them, really, nobody cares. Gosh, I'm even thinking, you know, just just listening to those questions, I'm going off at a tangent slightly, and I'll come back to what I wanted to say. But it's, it's almost like when you're feeling completely lost and, and hopeless, you can bring yourself back up out of a dip by somebody helping you to to answer those questions about yourself as a person. I know it's a, I know it's on a tangent but you could really help someone to see why the world needs them and and what and what a loss it would be if they weren't around anymore and and that people do care. But anyway, that's a tangent. Um and but what a meaningful way yeah. to do something, right? And that's becoming a meaning enabler. That's what I mean by become if you help others find meaning in what they do you become a meaning enabler you help others cultivate meaning and that is really pardon the pun very meaningful yeah yeah and and i've i was just reminded of um when when i saw you speak and you very kindly offered um offered your books to the the first three people to ask a question and i was sort of jumping out the chair (laughs) (laughs) and was the first one to ask and i'm trying to remember how i phrased the question but it was a little bit like like a chicken and egg thing to say that okay so but if, if you've got organizations who are like okay so we need to do this impact thing because it'll it'll differentiate us as an employer so how do we tick the impact boxes versus organizations who are already doing their best to help their people understand the, the difference that they make and what have you. It, does it really, does it really matter? 
It so does. It really, it really does matter. I'll give you a few examples. Firstly, what you're referring to is what I cover in my corporate social responsibility book as instrumental versus moral motivation to do ah, this. I must read that book. It's nice when we have words for things, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the instrumental motivation is what's in it for me. And that's a very self-oriented motivation. And we could fool some people some of the time, but we can't fool everyone all of the time. Yeah. And that would come back to bite us. <laughs> when we have companies, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few, example in, a few examples in a second, but when we have companies who are not genuine about their CSR and their impact, they're doing more harm than good. It's best that you don't do anything because what will happen is people will become, oh, they're just greenwashing us again. They will become very cynical and then they might stop trusting companies who do the right thing. The moral motivation, or I would even say the moral obligation, is when companies feel we should do it because it's the right thing to do. Yes. And we don't think about what's in it for us. We're doing it because there are moral imperatives that we need to follow. And I, I share how, you know, studying philosophy impacted me in my 20s and learning ethics at a very young age mm. and to be able to say, okay, here are the rules. And, and I was looking desperately for new rules, <laughs> but these were good rules because they were always about bettering others. And one of Immanuel Kant's um, categorical imperatives, the rules for always being ethical, was called the formula for humanity. And I love it so much. It means ah. never use another human being as a means to an end, only as the end itself. Now, when companies are using us as their customers or stakeholders to make more profit by misleading us on how purpose-driven they are, it's one of the worst sins because you're being unethical about how ethical you are. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I think that's that's unforgivable. Yeah. So that's why companies have been called out on their greenwashing. In fact, there is last year, there's been um, um, legal action taken against a company that um, said that it's sustainable when it was not. So greenwashing is now really backfiring and we can't, we can't afford another decade of greenwashing because we really do need real action that comes from companies that care and that they take all the required steps to minimize harm and, and do good. And one of the interesting things that I've been seeing, I've got a PhD student actually who studies brand activism. That's when companies, uses, um, the companies use who they are and their marketing and their social media platforms to talk about political issues, mm -hmm. supporting LGBTQIA plus community, um, freedoms, freedom of speech, um, inclusion and diversity and so on. And for it was really interesting. There was a, a study done, um, published in the Harvard Business Review, and it showed that when the company was not perceived as doing this genuinely, its share price actually went down. But when wow. public companies did it and it was perceived by people as a genuine holistic approach, their share value went up. Yeah. So there are a lot of examples where companies are just 
using brand activism and wash, you know, greenwash or whatever it is. Um, sometimes it's called rainbow washing if they're just telling us how wonderful they are for the LGBTQIA community, mm. but they're not. That they are trying to um, show us that, you know, we have to fight for gender equality, but you look at their board and they're all white males. Yeah. So if you don't walk the talk, yeah, it's best not to talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That, that's that's gold. If you don't walk the talk, it's best not to talk. I'm so glad I asked that question. And 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 there was something that I picked up when you talking about your PhD student and um, the work that you do now as as the um, MBA director. I mean, we've got new generations of leaders. We've got these emerging leaders that 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 we're educating. Can you talk a little bit about? bringing bringing these topics into an MBA and what potential difference that's making? I will. And I will also talk about how it's changing, incredibly so. So <laughs> I started teaching at Macquarie University 12 years ago, and I always taught in the MBA. And I started off teaching organizational behavior and people's management. And then I started off, um, I've, I've moved on to teaching social entrepreneurship, um, looking at social enterprises like Thank You, but also corporate social responsibility. And I remember teaching CSR or even social entrepreneurship, and I had students coming to my class saying, I, I don't even know what it means, but I heard you're a really good teacher, so I'm coming to your class. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I don't know what social entrepreneurship is, but I want to start a business. So I thought, oh, it's something to do with entrepreneurship. I'll go and take your class. And you just go, okay. And then you have <laughs> 10 weeks to transform their worldview and you try doing that. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But what I've witnessed is such a change in the MBA students' mindset They no longer come to the classes just because, you know, they've got nothing else to take. I just finished teaching in in May and June, teaching the CSR class. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible to see how people were eager and keen Mm -hmm. to learn more about CSR so they can Mm -hmm. take it back to their organization. Some of them are in senior positions and they will be able to take it back and implement it holistically like I preach <laughs> for them to do. <laughs> and so it really is incredible. And, you know, I've, I've, I'm also a researcher, so I don't just teach. I also do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've done is I work with the United Nations Principles for Responsible Management Education. And we've conducted several studies together over a decade, over 10,000 business students from around the world. And we've asked them about how much they want to study CSR mm-hmm. a lot and how much they are keen to work for a responsible employer, very much. But one of the things that I've asked them, which really surprised me, was I asked them, how much would you be willing to forego of your future salary to work for a, an employer that's holistically responsible? And I put all these different Uh, elements Mm -hmm. and then I put like a table (laughs) and I said zero percent one to ten eleven to twenty and I was hesitant around the end I said should I say over forty percent no one is going to pick it up no one is going to say I'm I'm willing to forego over forty percent of my salary who's going to do that but to my shock and surprise 
one, oh, let me say this first, 95% of them said yes to giving up some level of their future salary to work for a responsible employer. 95%. Wow. And then one in five students said that they're willing to forego over 40%, about half their salary, to work for such a purpose-driven, sustainable, responsible employer. And I thought, wow, this is a really strong message that they're sending us as their educational institution and their future employers. Now, if you're smart as an employer and you want to win the war for talent, imagine what it would do to your business if you offer both purpose and impact and a good salary. Absolutely. Because they shouldn't sacrifice their salary. It was kind of a, a way to test their commitment. Yeah. And if you really are responsible, then you are pay, you know, you will pay your employees well. So you don't need to abuse people's willingness yes. to um and people say to me, Yeah, but they're only students. Well, most of them are were in managerial positions when they took the surveys. And we also know that people do it all the time. They're willing to sacrifice their their job level and their salary to work for a not-for-profit or a special yeah. enterprise, or it's called the heart factor. We actually are willing to give up a lot to do something that's close to our heart because that's when we do get this sense of yeah. mattering. When I was very young, I worked in this project for these disadvantaged uh, or children from disadvantaged families that I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And I made very little money, but I was so happy going to my office for seven years and then I, I moved to the Hilton Hotel afterwards and I tripled my salary and tripled my misery. I was just so miserable. And I left after six months because money is not enough yeah. to keep you engaged in your work. And that's what a lot of business get wrong. And that's why we have the quiet quitting and the great resignation mm. and really high levels of disengagement and active disengagement at work is because we don't get what really make people tick. Oh, I, I I hear you there. I um <laughs> I I, le- I left corporate and took an eighty percent drop in salary, wow. and I've I've actually never earned the amount that I did earn in corporate, and I've never regretted a single moment. Amazing! <laughs> I love that. You're amazing. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting listening. There was maybe a bit of an assumption I made when I said about emerging leaders and MBA students, obviously there'll be mature students in there as well. But I'm curious, Debbie, from your research, this this sort of uh, uh, enlightened understanding of and desire for meaningfulness, is it a generational thing? um, Or is it just the world is waking up, so to speak? We tend to say that Generation Y starts with a Y and they get a purpose more than the previous generations, but I don't think it's necessarily true. Mm. It's just that we have different ways of trying to find purpose. I really do think that humans in general are meaning-searching creatures mm, yeah. <laughs> and that we've always, we always did, we always will um, do, we'll always look for some purpose in life. And it's really interesting that um, I looked at two very interesting pieces of research. One was done by the Harvard, Harvard University 
looking at happiness and its causes. And by the way, I was invited to speak at the happiness and its causes large convention in November. I'm super excited oh, about fabulous. that. Yes. So I'm very, very excited about that. But the research showed us that looking at people for 70 years and trying to figure out what really made them happy mm-hmm. was not the big house. It was not the, the promotion. It was not the salary <laughs> rise. Or, you know, it was always about connections and about relationships. And I read an article by the researchers who did this research and they ended up writing the sentence, which it it turns out that really all you do need is love. Uh, And that was a beautiful thing. And another piece of research that I loved looked at uh, people's regrets towards the end of their lives. Mm -hmm. No one ever regretted not working more, not making more money. It was never, it never came up. What people regretted was not spending enough time with their family, breaking up their family, living behind people they loved. These were the biggest regrets. So we are really biologically hardwired to connect with other human beings. And we have to remember that when we take it to the workplace as well, you want happy and engaged employees who will go the extra mile. Mm -hmm. Don't just expect it work for it, give people a sense of belonging and and safety and inclusion, but also give them a sense of mattering and significance in what they do, because that's what really makes people happy. All you need is love. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I would love to end on that, but I've got one more question because I really, I, I really, really want people to to buy your book because it's such it's it's really very I don't know the way it's designed is really clever so you've got your story on the in there but then these really practical models and steps for helping people and organizations find meaning so and I'm just curious as to how did you choose this it's like two books in one approach I know. And some people love it. And some people, (laughs) I have to to admit, some heartbreaking reviews on Goodreads where people gave me one star and said, but I only wanted to read the memoir. (laughs) So actually, you know, listening to me talking now and I listen to myself, it's quite incredible that until a couple of years ago, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that I have a story to tell. I never thought about it. Wow, this is an interesting story. I grew up in a cult and I became a professor of CSR. <laughs> it didn't cross my mind. But then I read Educated by Tara Westover. And I remember reading it and thinking, you know, her story growing up in a very extreme Mormon family and undergoing abuse and whatnot, and then educating herself and going to university and even doing a PhD. And I thought, hmm you know what, I also have a really interesting story to tell because like I say in the book, if a fortune teller told me at the age of 19 that I would end up being a professor of CSI in Australia, I would have asked for a refund. It was not in in the books for me. So it was, I thought I have an interest, but I don't want to just write a memoir because in everything that I do, and I, I define it really well, I say in my teaching, research, writing, Whatever it is that I do, I'm trying to create a positive impact. Mm. 
if I only wrote the memoir, yeah, it might have positively impacted a few people going, oh, this is a really interesting story and maybe I can find some inspiration in it. But when I can translate my life story to learnings and lessons about how to find meaning, it made, you know, it made the book a lot more, more meaningful. And it's funny because I was thinking people write books on how to get rich and that makes them richer. <laughs> you know, all these uh, poor dad, rich son, whatever. <laughs> that's, that's how you make money. But for me, writing a book called Make It Meaningful yeah. made my life a lot more meaningful. I never know who buys the book and how it's going to influence mm. them. And then they're going to say, you know what? I'm going to start a social business or I'm going to start volunteering. And then they're going to affect other people. And I don't even know it, but I feel like I'm getting this hidden dividends of impact <laughs> in whatever it is that I'm that I'm doing. That's what motivates me. That's oh. why it couldn't just be a memoir. It had to be a memoir intertwined with a self-development book, which doesn't necessarily tells you there is one way of doing things. You've got to subscribe to my model and do what I tell you. Nah. All I do is I provide some tools and some food for thought and I hope that people can take away from it whatever it is that they want to take away from it. Well, Debbie, it, it completely reignited my sense of, of meaning and meaningfulness. And I know I think you can quite happily sit on your back deck with a cup of tea or a glass of wine and just imagine the ripple effect of this. I just thank it's been an absolute joy listening to you, and I'm so glad you said yes to, to this podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, I can't thank you enough. It was such a pleasure speaking to you and reflecting on all of this. Thank you. Oh, and I'll put all the links to all your wonderful resources on the show notes. Debbie, go well, keep shining and imagining the light and the shining in other people's eyes because that's the difference that you're making. That is such a beautiful way to finish this off. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And we hope that this conversation provided the insights and inspiration that you were looking for. Authentic Leadership is currently ranking fourth in the top 25 Australian leadership podcasts. We'd love you to help us get to number one and to get the key messages about modern day leadership out there. And this is how you can help. Head over to Apple iTunes and do three quick things. Subscribe, give us a positive rating and write a short review. Also, if you can follow us on Spotify and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube by visiting the at Being Brainsmart channel, we'd really appreciate it. And before you go, if you'd like to know what I do when I'm not interviewing amazing guests, I help people in business to lead better work smarter, build great teams, and thrive in change. To find out more, head over to the BrainSmart website. That's brain-smart.com to see examples of our programs. Or email me, Claire, that's C-L-A-R-E, at brain-smart.com. Go well, and thanks for listening.